0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homefulness Podcast, a conversation dedicated to making home in our multifaceted culture of displacement. I'm your host, Andrew Stevens Rennie. It is
1: a striking image in Revelation 18, an image of judgment upon the whole colonial project that has predicated the making of home on the exclusion of Indigenous peoples from
0: their home. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Sylvia Kiesmat, biblical scholar, farmer, permaculture practitioner, and activist. This is Sylvia's talk from our symposium earlier this year, entitled, Home is Where the Wild Rice Is, Settler Homemaking and Indigenous Homelessness. This short
1: piece is an exploration of one central question. What happens when the aspirations of home and homemaking for one people is predicated on the destruction of the home of another people? I will explore this question in relation to the Michi Saagiig Nishnabeg, the people on whose traditional territory I now live, in what is currently called the Kortha Lakes region of Ontario. Let me begin by saying that the story of the michisagig Nishnabeg is not my story. I am a settler, but I've been listening to and exploring this story in relation to the biblical story for some years now. In the stories of old, the michisagig Nishnabeg were led to this place where the food grows upon the water. The Nishnabeg called that food manumen, the good seed. Settlers call it wild rice. Manuman is the basis of Mishisagak Nishnabeg life. Its health is important for all of the relations that share the waters. According to James Wheatung, who is working to restore Manuman in his traditional lands, in this region, the lake without wild rice is a desert. Once the wild rice is established, everything just multiplies, from the bugs to the birds, muskrats, beaver, otter, and fish. The whole environment benefits because wild rice provides safety and security to the swimmer, the flyers, the four-legged, and to us, the two-legged. In short, manumen is the basis of home, both for the michisag people and for the many other creatures that live among its stalks and eat its foliage and grain. The centrality of Manumin in creating home for the Michi Saga is just one example of how home is deeply rooted in a relationship with the land for indigenous peoples. If we listen to the knowledge keepers of the Michi Saga if we listen to and read the stories of Giriga Migazi, also known as Doug Williams of Curve Lake, recounted in his book, Michi Saga This is Our Territory, or Leanne Betasamosake Simpson, a knowledge keeper of Alderville First Nation and author of As We Have Always Done, we discover a living relationship between land, people, animals, and plants that was not only alien to, but completely misunderstood by the colonizers and settlers who came to Turtle Island. For settlers, deeply rooted in the colonial enlightenment worldview, where land and wilderness were only fruitful if they were controlled, exploited, cleared, and harvested, this land was terra nullius, empty land, since indigenous peoples were not making home in ways that the settlers recognized. For the Michisagig, the trees and the waters provided food that they followed each season. The maple bush provided sap in the spring, the three sisters that is maize beans and squash were planted in well tended clearings in the summer the forest and fields provided berries and nuts along with medicines from flour and bark all tended and gathered in the summer in the fall the deer and the elk provided meat for food fur and hides for clothing and shelter bone and sinew for tools and thread and in the fall too the people gathered at the shallow lakes to harvest the manumen the good seed Growing on the waters of the lakes. The birch trees provided bark for canoes and containers. The spruce and pitch and pine provided pitch for sealing. The mother basswood provided not only food and wood, but inner bark that was made into twine and thread or woven into baskets. But the land held even more than these things. The land held the stories of the Mishisaga Anishinaabeg. The land held their sacred spaces, the places where their ancestors lived and are buried. The land gave them their rituals and provided lessons for their children. The land held them in love. All of the creatures, plants and animals, were considered to be the relations of this people. Thanksgiving was offered to Creator, and tobacco was given in thanks to those creatures who sustained the people. And... This way of life endured for thousands of years because it was deeply rooted in respect for all the living things that shared this land. This people could be sustained for thousands of years in this place because traditional indigenous knowledge passed on from generation to generation. The skills and love necessary to ensure that this this land could provide all that is needed for the plants, the animals, the forests and the lakes, and the michisagig themselves to flourish. michisagig Nishnabeg elder Gidigam Megizi describes their way of life this way, it was designed to be sustainable and to protect our children yet to be born. And what is home if not the place where your stories live? A place of permanence for generations to come, a safe resting place, a place where those who cohabit the space are loved, a place of belonging, a place where children can be raised and protected. These are some of the categories from a phenolo- phenomenology of home described by Steve Bama and Brian Walsh in their book, Beyond Homelessness. But there is more. Home is also a place of hospitality, The Mishisagak Nishinaabeg lived a life of deep hospitality to the other creatures who shared this land with them, always ensuring that this land was not only a home for their people, but also a home for all the plants and animals, the birds and the fish to whom they were related. And they were willing to share the land with the Odawa and the Huron, also known as the Wendat, over the centuries. And ironically, they also shared their knowledge with the first settlers of this place. And I think you know where such hospitality led. The colonizers, the settlers, had a vision of home that did not involve hospitality for other creatures, for the plants, trees, and animals that inhabited this land. The settlers did not have a vision of home where the land held the memories of the people, the stories and the songs and the rituals. They did not have a vision of home that included attentiveness to the land, care for the creatures who inhabited the land, love, for the creatures and the land. And in order to impose a different vision of home, of settlement on this land, they employed strategies that made it impossible for the Mishisagig Nishnabeg to be at home here. First, after the War of 1812, when British refugees began an influx north from the US, wave after wave of settlers moved into this area. Cutting down the maple trees, cutting down the nut and fruit trees, the birch and the basswood, to make way for farmland. The pastures and meadows tended by the Mishisaga Agnishnabeg were plowed under by the settlers. The deer, rabbit, coyote, and fox declined while the elk disappeared altogether. The mills polluted the waters and the dams for the Trent Severn Canal system drove out the salmon. These same dams, along with the locks constructed for settler pleasure boats, drowned the wild rice beds, their staple food. More recently, the cottagers have colonized the shores of the lakes, preventing access for fishing and harvesting. The legitimation for this destruction of the land and foodways of the Mishisaga Gnishnabeg was found in the treaties, the official documents of 1818 and 1923, that the Mishisaga Gnishnabeg were forced to sign, ceding control of their land and later their hunting, fishing, and gathering rights to the colonizers. And this is where the crux of the matter lies. For a people who did not consider the land something that could be owned or sold These were considered agreements to share the land peacefully, not agreements that relinquished their rights completely. How can the land, home to all creatures, given in love by the creator, be sold? This land, these lakes and trees, and the many animals who make home here are most fundamentally a gift, not something to be hoarded or consumed, but rather something to be treated with respect and love. These treaties were written in a language not fully understood by the Mishisagig Nishnabeg. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, I've taken a look at the treaties, and I'm an academic, and they are obtuse, really. As Gidiga Migizi puts it, we would never sign away our rights to hunt, fish, and gather on our land. How would we survive? Without access to the land that was their home, the Mishisagig Nishnabeg began to starve. But the colonizers knew that there was more to home than access to food. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 1 took the most promising young men from the Hebrew exiles who had been brought to this land. He schooled them in the language and literature of the Chaldeans. He gave them new names and gave them new food to eat, imperial food from the king's table. Colonizers have engaged in these practices ever since. In the residential schools, the michi saga children were forbidden from speaking their language, taught new stories, given new names, forced to eat the deplorable food of the empire. How could they remember their home on the land when they could not engage in the rituals around the manumen, the maple syrup, the planting of the three sisters? How could they remember their place when they could no longer tell the stories and speak the language that tethered them to the land? How could they learn what it was to be at home on the land when they long, could no longer eat the food that the land provided? And by the way, this removal of Indigenous children from their homes is not confined to the residential schools and the Sixty Scoops. More Indigenous children are in foster care today outside of their communities than were ever in the residential schools. This is a deeply shaming statistic. How do we grapple with this history? How, as a settler and a Christian whose home is based on the displacement and erasure of the Mishisag-Ignishnabeg from their homes, how do I enter into this story? Well, I want to explore a couple of biblical texts for guidance. First of all, the displacement of indigenous peoples from their homes has been legitimated and sanctioned by appeal to the biblical story. The invasion of Canaan by the Hebrew people, the call to destroy the pagan peoples of the land in the name of purity and worship of the one true God, was appealed to repeatedly by those settlers who saw it as their God-given task to rid the lands of Turtle Island of the savages and infidels who dwelt there. This was reinforced by the doctrine of discovery by which the Pope declared in the 1400s that not inhabited by Christians could be claimed by Christians in the name of their sovereign. Why push indigenous peoples off the land? Because the Bible tells me so. But does it, really? There are a number of ways in which this use of the conquest narrative is undermined in the larger thrust of the biblical story. The first way is by means of a number of stories by from below, stories largely, though not exclusively, about women. Think of it. While there is this this larger narrative strand pushing purity and destruction of the pagan peoples of the land, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, among others, there are astounding stories from below that demonstrate greater faithfulness to Yahweh by people from these despised groups. So Rahab, a Canaanite sex worker who hides the Hebrew spies, astoundingly confesses a deep trust in God, declaring, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and the earth below. You can find the story in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Again, later in the story, the Moabites welcome Naomi and Elimelech to their land, offer up their daughters in marriage, and one of those daughters, Ruth, is called Righteous, for fulfilling that central command of Torah to care for the most vulnerable, her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth is even called the Moabite throughout much of the book of Ruth to, to demonstrate her foreignness. And yet she is one of those supposed pagan people that undermine the narrative of conquest and destruction. Or consider the story of Uriah the Hittite, who refuses to go to his wife Bathsheba when home from battle thereby showing himself more honorable than king david this is in 2 samuel 11 he is killed for his pains but the fact remains he is more faithful the significant of these stories is made clear in matthew chapter 1 where jesus genealogy includes four women tamar also a canaanite woman rahab A Canaanite, Ruth the Moabite, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, just in case we'd forgotten that she was probably Hittite too, four foreign women. This is the first way that the narrative of conquest, the destruction of so-called pagan nations is undermined. And let me say that there are a number of ways that these stories are complicated and deeply ambiguous when looked at through a post-colonial lens, but that would be a whole other paper. Second, in Matthew 15, Jesus is met by a Canaanite woman. This is an odd descriptor since Canaanites no longer lived in the land. It would be like calling a modern-day Swede a Viking or somebody from northern France, you know, somebody who was a, a Briton, like as in from Brittany. Does Matthew, who we remember records the remarkable genealogy I just referred to, does he deliberately call this woman Canaanite? to evoke the story of exclusion from Hebrew history? There's a lot to say about the story, but let me focus on the cry of the woman for Jesus to have mercy and heal her daughter. Mercy is precisely what the Hebrews were not to offer to the pagan nations in Deuteronomy 7. Have no mercy on them, says the text. In this peculiar exchange where Jesus seems to be trying to find his footing with this woman who is indigenous to this land... She demonstrates a wit and an understanding of why Jesus is there. It is not right, Jesus says, to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. And we don't know if Jesus said this seriously or with a smile. I think the quick response of the woman suggests the latter, but we can't be sure. Yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She has grasped that this kingdom cannot be truly one of welcome if anyone is excluded, if anyone is hungry. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. Only two people are described as having great faith in the book of Matthew, this woman and a centurion, both of them Gentiles, one of them a Canaanite. So some people have called this passage the Canaanite conquest of Jesus. Because the dominant narrative of conquest is again undermined in this passage, where Jesus describes this Canaanite woman as having great faith. And finally, I want to say a couple words about the book of Revelation, which describes people of every tribe and nation praising God. There's a lot I could do on Revelation, but I don't have time for all of it. This book ends with the astounding vision of the new heaven and the new earth, where a river flows from the throne, and on the banks, the throne of God, and on the banks of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit in each season. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Now, some of you have heard me talk about this as a return to the food forest that was found on Turtle Island before the coming of colonizers fruit trees that bear their fruit in their season. That's what was here. And this is a vision of a people at home in the land, a river and a food forest, a home found with God that is embodied in this place of abundance, of gift, and this place of healing and home for all nations. But before we get to this vision in Revelation, something else had to happen. Babylon, which is a code word for Rome, in the book of Revelation, had to fall. All the merchant ships, all the movement of trade, all the exploitation of the forests and the animals, all the mining and the excavating, all the traffic in cattle and sheep and horses and chariots, also known as the weapons of mass destruction, and the trafficking of slaves, human bodies, and souls comes to an end. The merchants and rulers of the world raise their voices in wailing and mourning. The CEOs of our globalized economy, those cutting down the forests, mining the earth, growing the cash crops, pushing indigenous people off their land, enslaving the poor, all of them are now the people mourning the loss of their wealth and their power. It is a striking image in Revelation 18, an image of judgment upon the whole colonial project that has predicated the making of home on the exclusion of indigenous peoples from their home. Until we realize that our whole economic system is rooted in the enslaving of black, brown, and indigenous bodies, that vision of Revelation 22, where all the nations are healed to be at home together in an abundant land, cannot be realized. Both Jesus and his scriptures have some ideas about how that economic system can be undermined, Mm -hmm. as do the indigenous communities of this land. But I'm out of time, and that's a talk for another day.
0: Again, friends, my name is Andrew Stevens-Rennie. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about Sylvia and her work, you can visit www.russethousefarm.ca. There you'll learn more about the farm, heirloom tomato seedlings, as well as Sylvia's new online educational venture called Bible Remixed, where biblical depth meets radical discipleship. The Homefulness Podcast was developed by Empire Remixed in partnership with the Sorrento Center, co-hosts of the National Beyond Housing to Homefulness Symposium in Spring 2021.